Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. This is Riley Risto, and I'm here with... Christopher Hurtado. Hi, Chris. How you doing? Doing all right. How about you? Good. Good to be back. Uh, yeah, it's good. We're talking about kind of a fraught subject today. Yeah. And we've had a lot of like pre-show conversation about this. And frankly, we got into it a little bit. And maybe that's like totally representative of how people talk about this subject. It's such a sensitive subject. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So I, I, I'm kind of excited about it. It's going to be weird. And and I like to start every episode by saying, I don't know jack about what I'm talking about. I'm just kind of throwing things out there. You know, we have an intro that, that says that, and yet we still feel compelled to say it every time, don't we? I agree with you. Well, that's fine. I, I, don't, I think people like hit that plus 30 second button on the podcast and skip the intro. And I want to remind people all the time that I am not your guru and I am not an expert. Same here. So this, this mystery topic that we're going to talk about today is sin. And this, this topic, sin, is like, it's just full of so much um, baggage and it's just heavy. Culturally, it's such a loaded it's heavy. term. Historically, it's totally loaded. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so let's, let's start at the beginning. We're, we, we talked about this pre-show and we thought, okay, let's start theoretical and then we'll kind of delve into more individual contemplative and see how this affects us. So let's try it out. So Chris, you're the linguist. Where does the word sin come from? Well, the word that we're translating sin, it's from the, the Greek hamartia, and it's actually a, an, an archery term. And it means missing the mark. Missing the mark. In an archery context. Yeah, what's the mark? Well, the mark is um, the, the target. The mark is the target, right? Uh, literally, figuratively, it's perfection, right? It's be therefore perfect. So is everyone who is not perfect living in sin? We're all sinners. We're all sinners. We all fall short. Let's just start there. Yeah, and if we start there, there's this famous quote in the Bible that says, God does not look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Is that in the Bible? Or is that in the DNC? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. You were going to say you were going to say we all fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, all of us fall short of the glory of God. All men sin and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, all of us. Now, does that apply to the prophet? Yeah. Now, what are the implications of that? Well, it applies to me. That's that's all that matters to me. That's all that matters to me. Yeah. So we obviously have this, this standard that we could call God's standard, perfection. Perfection's another loaded term, isn't it? 
It is. Well, it's a misunderstood term, right? Because uh, perfection is thought to be some kind of, and maybe I just made the mistake of calling it a target. It's uh, it's like it's a destination, like it's a telos, like it's an end. Uh, whereas perfection is just completeness. And so if you think of perfection as a way of being rather than something to get to, then we can be perfect in sin, at least through Christ. Can I say that? I think that's true. I think we can be perfect in sin. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we can be perfect through Christ and in Christ. So let's circle back around to the other phrase that we mentioned there. God does not look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Yeah, does that mean he then doesn't uh, allow for me as in, in, in sin and in, in my and then, you know, doesn't the atonement cover me? Is that how it works? It's a mystery. Wait, you mean we don't know the answer? I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know how the atonement works. I, I'm, I've heard so many atonement theories, and pretty much none of them are really agreeable for me because they either imply that God is this near-psychopathic uh, megalomaniac that would beat his own son to satisfy his um, idea or demand for justice, which makes no sense to me from a loving God. Or there's this, you know, collective counsel, or you know, there's the uh, um, uh, what's his name, Skousen, the Skousen model of of the intelligences that need to be satisfied. Yeah, and then there's my idea, for what it's worth, that the ones that have to be satisfied, the ones who demand blood, you know, the ones calling for blood are, well, us. Somebody's got to pay, right? We're the only ones that really ever condemn each other. Yeah, well, yeah, Jesus shows up and the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven you. Thou art under no condemnation, he says. That's a great segue. Let's use that example. So there's the woman taken in adultery, and there's this whole crowd of Pharisees and religious people that are surrounding her, ready to stone her per the law of Moses, per their mark. Okay, this is this is the the mark that their arrow is aimed at, at that space and time. That is their social standard, which is that if you're taken in adultery, the penalty of that is stoning. And what does Jesus say? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they gradually disperse. And then he says to the woman, Where are the people condemning you? Yeah, where are those nine accusers? They're gone. None, Lord. They're gone. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Yeah. So it's just, it's fraught and it's heavy stuff. And I'm not sure that any of us understand it. There's this social component to sin that we tend to say comes from God. And there's an interest in that. There's a community interest in that, whether it's preserving the tribe or preserving a way of life or preserving a perception. The integrity of the community, maybe? Yeah, yeah. But it all comes down to that preservation. And so to preserve the tradition, the community, the integrity, whatever, the leadership, credibility, to preserve all that stuff, a standard has to be created whereby if people don't meet the standard, there's some attendant penalty or consequence. You know, it could even be just about protecting life and property. 
And when it comes to property, now there's something that that has changed over time. I think we're going to talk about changes in these standards over time. There was a time, the time when the commandment is given, that a wife is property. And that could have something to do with with the adultery issue, although there are there are usually, you know, there are two parties involved. And either or or both may or may not be married. Yeah, where's the man taken in adultery? This has started looking like a moving target, doesn't it? It's starting to look like a moving target. Well, I think that, you know, the history, uh, if you track this stuff, biblically, scripturally, if you track this stuff, it is a moving target. And Jesus is kind of like this turning point. He's the new covenant. He's the new, he's the New Testament. He's the way. And that is that condemnation doesn't actually come from God. Maybe. He says, neither do I condemn thee for a serious sin. How does, how does Jesus coming onto the scene change, change things? Because he clarifies, and I don't know the answer, this is my guess, but I think he clarifies who God is because he is God. So he's the, he's the living embodiment. Sticking with the, with the example of the woman taken in adultery, Jesus tells us that, that it's a sin to lust. And that's, you know, you're not even acting out. This is something personal. This is something that you're doing in your own heart. That changes things. Yeah, I think he, he has, he's got this clarity where he points to certain things as being sinful. But he doesn't point to the people as being sinful. So there's this difference in identification. Does that resonate at all with you? The question that comes up in my mind is, where is this happening? It's happening in people. That's my answer. Well, what I was trying to get at there was identifying an action as sinful is different than identifying a person as sinful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that goes back to my question. If God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, does that mean he cannot look upon me because I'm a sinner with the least degree of allowance? And of course, I answered my own question earlier with the atonement covering me, but that aside... Am I sin or am I a sinner? And what's the difference, right? He doesn't look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, but that doesn't mean he doesn't look upon a sinner with the least degree of allowance. Yeah, so here's a question to contemplate on that comes from that. Is the atonement more about helping us to see our own nature as children of God, not as quote-unquote identified as sinners? Is that really what the atonement is about? Yeah, you know, my first answer went to the atonement, and then I said, let's set that aside. For some, it's not possible to set that aside. It's, it's, I am, it's the sense that God cannot look upon me with the least degree of allowance because he says he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, and I'm a sinner. So without the atonement covering me, I'm not acceptable to God in that way of thinking. And do you agree with that way of thinking? No, not necessarily. I, I believe that God distinguishes between sin and between a sinner. I don't think that God is saying to the woman taken in adultery that it's not a sin to commit adultery. What he's saying is, I don't condemn you. I condemn the sin. Go and sin no more. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where we have to really use a little bit of nuance, right? 
because we're not identifying and Jesus isn't identifying the person with their action, good or bad. You know, when he says there's none good but God, don't call me good. There's none good but God. I mean, that's a bold statement coming from the son of God who never committed a sin. God is no respecter of persons, he tells us. Right. A person is a person. A person is a child of God, period. That's their worth. That's their true self. They are not to be identified as sinners or any other number of epithets or or labels we want to place on people. Saints? Neither sinners nor saints. Right. I mean, there can be secondary or tertiary identities, but they all have to become subservient at one point or another to that primary identification as son or daughter of God or child of God, to be even more generalized. We've talked a lot about identity and and divesting ourselves of all these other identities that we put on top of who and what we really are at the core as children of God. Yeah, that's the emptying, the first beatitude, the most important first step if we're to progress at all is, is the emptying, becoming poor in spirit. So even we have to realize that we're not sinners. That's a label that we put on ourselves. Are we in sin, perhaps? Must we... All men sin. Of course. Yeah, why am I saying perhaps? Yes, of course we're in sin. Of course we're in sin. Must we repent? Yes, of course. Are we sinners? No, we're children of God. Okay, so here's a question we discussed, and let's get into this one briefly. Since all men sin, is condemnation collective or is it individual? That's a tough question. It may be that that we act individually, but we act in a context, and there's a sense in which we're not separate. Well, in, a contem- in the contemplative tradition, in a mystical sense, in a mystic vision, let's say, or in mystic vision, not a vision, but in mystic vision, from a mystical point of view, we are not separate. And that sin the sin of any part of the whole is corporate in some sense. And it's easier to see this in some sins than others. We can talk about systemic injustices, right? Yeah, so let's look at systemic poverty um, or systemic uh, lack of education. I'd like to actually bring in a, a story here, a true story. This is from history. There, is, there are punishments in uh, Sharia law, and Sharia just means it's coming from the, the Quran and from the, the hadith, the, the sayings and doings of the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad. And there, there are what are called Hud punishments, and one of those includes the cutting off of hands of thieves. Now, cutting off of hands is controversial and does not have to be read as actual severing of hands. Uh, if you as in one case, uh, someone related to the caliph was uh, stealing from the treasury and he was sent into exile. Well, now his hands have been cut off from the treasury, right? You cannot reach into the treasury from exile. Yeah, is that any different than the idea of if your right eye is offending you, pluck it out? Right, that's that's a good, I think that's a good analogy. Or if your right hand offends that you cut it off, it's the same thing. Yeah, but in, but in any case, you know, regardless of how you interpret cutting off hands, um, there was a time of famine 
in, in the history of Islam, a particular time of famine in which the caliph said, look, there are going to be no hud punishments of that sort. You're not going to, you're not going to in any way punish someone who is stealing out of, um, out of hunger, right? You can think of Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, right? You have, um, it would be an injustice on top of the injustice of the, the hunger in a time of famine to punish someone who is uh, stealing, quote-unquote. Now, how, how do we define this? Even the, even the verse itself uh, from the Quran that says something about punishing people, it's about, um, it's about, is it about someone stealing or is it about someone stealing uh, out, of, out of greed or a repeat offender? The grammar suggests repeat offense, right, which is something of a habit, which is not the same thing as a Jean Valjean. I'm bringing this up as an example, as a, hopefully that's helpful to think about. There's a parallel teaching in the Bible that in the, in the law of Moses, you know, a traveler traveling through a wheat field or a cornfield was allowed to take just enough to feed themselves a small meal as they were passing through. And that was allowed for, I believe, in the law of Moses. And Jesus was teaching that lesson of, um, you know, he, he took some grain in his hands and he rubbed his hands together and he talked about the wheat and the chaff, right? And uh, if I remember right, there was some connection between that being on the Sabbath and him being caught in a Sabbath violation of harvesting. I'm not sure where I was going with that. <laughs> Other than I think that's a parallel kind of an, the same idea, you know, that um, stealing out of starvation, is that really stealing? I mean, here's, well, here's the question, right? Are you, is someone offering you food, right? You're starving. Is someone offering you food? Is it, you know, I can think of another from my time living in Damascus, uh, you know, you would, uh, I would put out my trash on the right day, just outside my door in the old, so this is the old city of Damascus. I was living in the, the most conservative quarter, the Muslim quarter in the old city of Damascus. And so you can just picture really narrow streets where you're not having a garbage truck coming through, right? This is an ancient city and you would put your trash outside. But I noticed when I was doing this the first time, I would notice uh, that my neighbors would have a bag and then next to it was the bread. You just don't throw away food. I mean, you can, I think you would want to be handing bread to, to starving people, right? But even if you would be putting it out with the trash, it's next to the trash. Even a bird could benefit from the bread. Even if there were no starving people, the, the idea of throwing away food is, is somehow seen as sinful, let's say. Man, I kind of love that. I mean, even if it wasn't taken advantage of, just to know it was there would offer such a sense of comfort if you were destitute. Yeah, absolutely. And so, that, you know, we're continuing this conversation about sin and in the context of systemic injustice, where sin is kind of built into the system. I actually hear this conversation a lot amongst mostly leftists, because on the, on the right side of the spectrum, politically, are people who are very individualist. But on the left, you have more people people that are more, you know, collective. And, and so they're the ones that typically have this narrative of sin being built into the system. And they probably wouldn't use the word sin because it's a very non-secular term, obviously. But is there a sense 
totally apolitical, taking politics completely out of it. But is there is there a sense in which the systems that we live in are inherently sinful and condemn us as a people? And, sh- and can we work to change those? And I, again, I'm ta- not talking politics. Uh, you know, it, it could be any kind of systems. Uh, maybe it's the corporate system and uh, or, or the way our money is structured. I don't know. I believe so. And it's, and it's not hard for me to take politics completely out of it because I have actually taken politics completely out of my, out of my life. It's not a part of my purview. I don't read news. I have not read news in years. I do not vote. I do not participate in any way at that level, at the level of politics. I don't think the solution is there. As a matter of fact, I think the answer to your question, for me at least, my answer would be, yes, it is. There is a problem and that we can work as individuals voluntarily to solve that problem by practicing pure religion, right? To feed the hungry, to to take care of the needy and the poor and the orphan, right? The same things, the things that Jesus taught, the things that the Buddha taught, the things that the Prophet Muhammad taught, this is pure religion. And, And all of the great traditions have taught this. And so when we do our part, there's no need for the government to do anything because it's already done. So maybe the greatest systemic injustice is the fact that we rely on a political solution at all to these problems, and and thereby we sort of slough off responsibility for things that we should be internalizing ourselves onto this Leviathan state and say, here, you take care of it. And that's such an impersonal way to do it, number one, because the state has no name. It has no face. It's It's this uncaring leviathan well and there's there's a sort of a contradiction built into that too because to paraphrase shakespeare what is the state but the people so there's a fiction there there's some kind of fiction because really we are the state and so i think you know when it comes to to this problem too it's also it's a there there is a vicious circle at play and here's why because as civil society shrinks In other words, as we don't take care of the problems ourselves, government grows. And as government grows, civil society shrinks. We've gotten to a point because maybe we didn't feed the poor, and now the government has gotten involved. And now if I want to bring my soup and give it to the people who are poor or who are hungry, well, then the government wants to know it has to come in a can. Well, now the the corporate part comes, right, the corporations are we can buy it from the corporations and give it to the poor but i can't make soup whether it be from canned goods or from my own garden because we want to see the can that it came out of with the ingredients on it i'm not licensed to prepare food or or whatever for the poor the government has become so involved that now it becomes difficult for me to actually do my part but why did that happen because we weren't doing our part and so it's a vicious circle as government grows, civil society shrinks. As civil society shrinks, government grows. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, initially there might there may have been all the best of intentions at the outset of building any of these systems, whether it's the American system or some other system. Great intentions, fine. But whenever there was this possibility for the individual to say, you know, I'm going to let them take care of it. And by them, they mean this impersonal state, which again represents people, but we don't see it that way. 
Like it's okay for us to receive, you know, some handout from quote unquote the government because we've depersonalized it. And conversely, it's okay for us to say, oh, the government will handle that because again, we've depersonalized it. So we've taken ourselves out of the work of discipleship, of mourning with those who mourn, of, you know, lifting the feeble knees and all that stuff. So I would agree in large part that the systemic injustice here is that we rely too much upon institutions to do the work of disciples. Do we even know our neighbor? You know, there's there was a time when if the the old lady next door didn't come out to get her paper for so many days or we didn't bring it to her door for her and ring the doorbell and hand it to her that we would notice and you would think something's wrong. Nowadays, you have you have true stories where the the little old lady next door has been dead for weeks and no one has noticed. Uh, they or if they did notice, they said, "Well, it's not my problem. The state will take care of it. It's somebody else's problem." Yeah, it's the government's job to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction, not ours. We have welfare for that. We have Medicaid for that. We have, you know, uh, the child welfare system for that. We have all these other things. You know, so we've depersonalized discipleship. Yeah, and there's a place there's a place perhaps for for institutions. We have a welfare system in the church. But should that stop me from offering help where I see a need and I can? Well, that's a great question to ask to be honest cuz think about this, you know, that there's this tithing and offering system and the way most people interpret that is they say, okay, well there's the 10% of my income plus my free will offering over and above that. And you give it to a system. And that system is highly efficient. I mean, we're a model, obviously, of humanitarian care throughout the world. Much more efficient than the government. Absolutely. We have the government looking into our welfare system because ours works and theirs doesn't. Yes. Yeah, so it's very, it's highly efficient, very effective. But is that the point? I mean, it may be. I'm not saying it isn't. But it, it has, again, it's it accomplished sort of the same thing. It's taken charity out out of my hands and, and, and made it more of like, okay, you take care of that. Here's what I see, Riley. If, if, if I'm not aware of the need and the bishop is, well, then that's really helpful. And the bishop is in a position to be aware. He's going to be made aware either by the person in need or by the person caring for the person in need who can't actually solve the problem himself. Now, there's a question. Could he just solve the problem himself? Could the ministering brother just take care of the problem? And Maybe he can't. And if he can't, okay, then the bishop is there and he lets him know and then the system is there or the institutions are there and the, everything's in place and that's fine. But if I am aware and I can solve the problem, what what stops me from solving the problem. Well, you bring up a great point because is there a sense in which the bishop may say, oh, th- this is this is a job for the, the fast offering fund that I've got, you know, versus this is a job for the ministering brother or sister. And I think it's a mindset change. We're very used to institutions handling our problems for us. Even within the church, I think this is a thing. And I'm I'm not trying to be critical. I think our church is extremely, like I said, efficient and effective in serving the poor. I think that's great. It really is a model. It is. It really is. To our our own government here in the United States and in, in the world, on the world stage, it's recognized as a model. I just wonder if it's 
But is that the mark? Is that the mark? Yeah, yeah. Good question. That's it. Is it the mark? Is it helping all of us to fulfill our discipleship? And by the way, you know, the bishop may or may not be made aware not only of the people within, well, I was going to say in the ward, the bishop is really responsible for people in the ward boundaries, and that includes people who are not even members of the church. And I I have personally been aware of people who are not members of the church who have received assistance from the church. And that has been seen as a problem at times, Uh, not by me, but it has been seen as a problem and it has been done. And, you know, the people within the word boundaries include the people on the corner, right? The people who who are homeless in the word boundaries, depending on where you live, right? That's a reality. So Christopher, we just barely hit the 30 minute mark. And I just want to ask this question. In this theoretical conversation that we've been having, do you feel like sin is more of a collective responsibility than an individual condemnation? My sense and my gut is yes, it is. I do think, you know, and we can, sin is sin. There are sins that, that I can commit that, that really, that don't directly affect other people or that even if they are harmful to me, or even if they're harmful to people close to me, that they're not at the level of people are dying, right? People are starving. People are homeless. People are without uh, parents. You have orphans, right? You have orphans. You have people who lack drinking water. And by the way, maybe my own personal sin can keep me from a level of, well, from having the Holy Ghost with me, from a level of uh, being able to perceive the problems of others because I'm so wrapped up in myself, maybe in sins of the flesh, as it were, maybe in my own gluttony or lust or whatever I may be dealing with, right, that could keep me from being aware of others. And maybe that's the real problem with those sins. Does that make sense? That It yeah. does. Yeah, great points. And I think maybe we can solve the small ones before we can reach out and tackle the big ones. Jordan Peterson, you know, clinical psychologist, author, all that stuff. He, he makes a big point of saying so many people want to try to solve the world's problems, but they, they don't even make their bed before they wake, before they leave the house. You know, I mean, they can't even keep a job or, you know, they can't modulate their own lives. And so he would say, you know, go make your bed first and and then worry about the world's big problems. And and there's really something to that. We we really should figure out how our individual actions prevent us or enable us to be able to have an impact on the world and address that first. I think that's a very well spoken point. And yet, unsurprisingly, I feel like we find ourselves in a double bind, which is Again, unsurprising because that seems to be what life is all about from the garden, from Adam and Eve and the partaking of the fruit down through this issue today that we're talking about today. We have this, you know, which comes first and can we do both at the same time and can we be working on both at the same time and what is the right way to do it? And I think this is where when I start to get in this place where I am now, in you know here sharing from the heart you know i don't i don't have the answers like i have to turn to god i have to seek guidance i have to seek counsel from on high i have to know 
from God what to do in each moment. And there again, if I have personal sins that can get in the way of that, that's that's going to be the main thing to focus on first. So here's another question. Has God revealed his ideal or standard to the world? Some would say he has in giving us his commandments. Another answer is yes, in Jesus Christ. He is the standard. He is the model. Not to be an idol, to look and say, isn't that nice, but to follow him as he has invited us to do. To follow, to to live into that model. To see him as the mark and aim toward that mark, even if it's not attainable. Even, or even if we feel like it's not attainable, to actually strive for perfection. So putting it back in the context of sin, there's this sense in which sins have the ideas of sin, what's, what constitutes a sin, what the consequences are for sin. All that stuff has changed over time. It obviously changed from the garden until the law of Moses. It changed from the law of Moses through the you know, the administration of the rabbis, and then from then to the time of Jesus in the meridian of time. It changed from then to the time of the councils uh, in early Christianity and th- and thereafter through institutionalized churches in, in Europe and elsewhere. And, and then it, it has changed within the restoration from, from the time of Jesus. And there's been things added. There's been things dropped. The consequences have changed. The penalties are different. And even within the last 200 years of our own church history, you've seen ideas and standards uh, related to sins and consequences morph over that short period of time, 200 years. And so what is this standard that's revealed by God? And if, it, if there is a standard, why does it change? It seems like there's a close connection, as we've already hinted at, between societal norms and what is sinful in some sense. So who's driving the boat? I think we are. I think if we take agency seriously, we have to realize that we are, and that God is trusting us, and that we're falling short, right? He's trusting us to take care of the widow, and the, and the poor, and the needy, and the hungry, and to clothe the naked, and to feed the hungry, and all of that, right? I like this idea you brought up before about Jesus being the standard. Because he is God in flesh, he is incarnation, is there any better standard than a living, breathing exemplar that we can all look to and say, this is how he lived? Yeah, and if we take God as, you know, incarnate, as seriously, right, as, and, and we have Jesus as God incarnate, saying that he is the son of man, bene Adam, he says, the son of man, then we realize that in some sense we are all God incarnate. In Christ, we are all God incarnate. He's showing us, again, the way, right? He's the model. Yeah, how do we approximate best that, I say Christian, but I really mean Christ ideal, that, that was set by God in sending his son? How do we approximate the standard? How do we become complete in Christ? You know, the, the answer that comes first to my mind really has to do with its humility, right? It's, it's following his example, 
which is the last shall be first, the first shall be last, right? It's the servant. It, what did Christ do? He served. He healed. He mourned with those who mourn. He gave us, and he taught us in the in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught us the Beatitudes. He told he taught us a path, a path that we've actually discussed here over a number of episodes. You and Shiloh, before I joined you, uh, you and I and Morgan and Travis uh, as guests, right? So one of the things I love to do with the words of Jesus is personalize them. I think everyone does this. I'm not unique in this aspect, but I think about every time that he says something to his disciples, I imagine myself as one of his disciples. Um, and, and there's this scene in the Last Supper where he says, one of you will betray me. And all of the disciples in attendance you know, simultaneously are like, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Yes. That's the answer. I think, you know, in the, and you caught me off guard with that question because in the story, there's one, but the answer really is all. And that's the point I was making is in trying to personalize all these stories, I really don't care that it was Judas that was being addressed there because when I personalize it, I know that it was me that betrays him. I know that because of the way I live. It's not what I want, and I can strive to be more and do better. But if I ask myself honestly the question, Lord, is it I? Yes. And then there's different. When you said more and better, I thought of different. Yeah. And I think of, and I think of a line from... What's Up, Doc? A favorite film in my family, a favorite of, of mine and my sister's, you know, when we were little, a favorite of my kids because we've shared it with them. I have. And uh, when Barbara Streisand says to Ryan O'Neill, she says, well, he says, you, you, you're, you're different, right? And she says, well, I'll try to be the same. And he says, the same as what? The same as people who aren't different. But there's there's this idea of more, better, different that I think I feel the same way. I often feel the same way. I have to be more, I have to be better, I have to be different. And yet, in some sense, this does not really show a transformation. If I'm looking for a transformation, it's not just more, better, different. It's a new creature. Does that make sense? To say it's not that it's something more than more, better, different that we're after? It, it does. And I, I think I would still answer the same. I, I think if, if I was asked that question, Lord, is, or if, if I were to answer the question honestly, Lord, is it I? I would still answer it the same, knowing full well, well there's this idea of transformation and repentance that is available to me and is a daily tool to be used throughout my life. It's never going away. But that's part of the journey. Yeah, I would answer the same way too. What I mean by the more, better, different thing is just that in answering yes, it is I, indeed. I'm not sure that more, better, different is really... I think more, better, different has us, and I think it's very... I bring it up because I think it's a part of our culture, as of Latter-day Saint culture, of doing more, of doing better, of doing different, when there's perhaps a complete paradigm shift that's possible in which it's not about that and in which it's about 
a complete transformation. And, and, and what the Bible is telling us is supposed to happen is this new creature. And this is when we, when we go through the, when we actually empty ourselves, right? When we actually go through the process that the, that the Lord has given us in his Sermon on the Mount, that we actually become completely transformed and we're a new creature. And I think that's the covenant path too. Isn't that what the covenant path is about? Becoming a new creature? Yeah. I mean, we can go through the steps and, and check off the ordinances, as, but as we've discussed in previous episodes, if we're really making the most out of each of these opportunities, I'm going to call them opportunities, for, for a complete transformation, we can become transformed. And this is the alchemical process that we talked about with Morgan. This is the deification that we talked about with Travis. This is the covenant path. This is the way of a, of a transformation that God is offering us rather than a transaction of, if you keep my commandments, then I'll give you this. I don't think that's what it's about, I th- this transaction, right? I think it's about a transformation. Yeah, I mean, there's a tension between being and becoming for sure. The becoming tells us that we're not enough and that we have to do more and be more. And uh, I don't necessarily want to just let myself completely off the hook and refuse to progress by just telling myself, I'm just going to stay here at this at this place where I'm at. Well, there's this thing we talked about with Jana, right, about the only way to the next level is to be fully present and aware of the level where we are. That's the acknowledgement. Yeah. And ultimately, if we go back to your episode with Shiloh on worth and worthiness, we're reminded that we're already always worthy and that the only thing to become is aware. And that, as I mentioned before, with someone who got into a, one of these Facebook arguments with Shiloh that he shared with me, someone might say, well, wait, you're you have uh, raped and killed and you're, uh, you're already always worthy. And again, my answer in Shiloh is yes. You're just not aware of it, right? You, you wouldn't be doing these things if you knew who you are. If you were fully aware of, your, of the grace that's yours, of the, of the atonement, of the forgiveness that's yours, of who you are as a son or a daughter of God, if you knew these things, if you were aware and this is where contemplation comes into place, right? Is if you are aware. Yeah, that's the critical difference between being and becoming is awareness. So there's this other episode in the life of Jesus when, when the Pharisees or the scribes or whomever ask him what the greatest commandments are or the great commandment. And he says, well, the first is to love God and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I... I wanted to ask this question to sort of set up not necessarily a discussion of opposites, but just to contrast a little bit. If if the great commandment is to love God and love your neighbor, what is the great, because we're talking about sin, what is the great sin? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways we can answer this, right? As with the question about which disciple betrays Christ, right? On the one hand, we can say, and this is going into opposites, right, that the greatest sin is to not keep the greatest commandment, which of course is, is a fundamental, it's a foundational commandment so that, as Henry Drummond wrote uh, in The Greatest Thing in the World, if you keep the first commandment, 
the other commandments really become unnecessary. You're already automatically keeping the other commandments if you are keeping the first and greatest commandment. On the other hand, when it comes to me and my own sphere, the greatest sin is the one that I'm dealing with, the one that's keeping me from being close to God. Yeah, that's, again, if I'm to personalize any of these lessons for myself, it's that the great sin to me is the one I'm committing actively at the time, in the moment. And again, sin carries a lot of baggage, but let's just put aside all the the imputed meanings of sin and everything that it communicates to our psyches and whatever, and just look at it instead as an opportunity to learn and grow. So the one thing that I need is the thing that I need. It's not, it's not, you know, some grand explication that I'm, I'm never going to reach that God wants me to this massive standard way, way high above me. It's just this thing that I need in the moment. It's the thing that I need to grow or be aware of in the moment. And that to me, like if I think of what the great sin is, oh, it's, it's the one that I'm dealing with. And when I think of contemplation, I think this is where it really comes in handy. I was going to say, this is where it's crucial. This is really where contemplation is crucial because we must be aware of what that is. Right? If that's really it, and I think it is, then we need, we need to know what it is. Right? What is that sin that we are? What is the sin that's keeping us from being close to God? The one that we're committing right now? Are we even aware of the sin that we're committing right now? I think, you know, in my experience of having my sins pointed out to me, I don't think I'm always aware of them when they're pointed out to me. And it's it's interesting because people point them out to me in ways that say, don't you realize you're doing this? And the answer is, no, I don't. Thank you for pointing it out to me. And I, I wish I could respond, thank you for pointing it out to me. Usually we're defensive, right? I'm defensive because someone's pointing out my sins. I should begin to say, thank you for pointing that out to me. And that's repentance, right? It's just to really see, oh yeah, you know what? You're right. I am, boy, I'm facing in the wrong direction. Let me turn and point my bow somewhere else, right? Yeah, this this thing that you're describing to me encapsulates so many of the Beatitudes in one. Because to empty ourselves of the, you know, our ego, our pride, whatever you want to call it, and mourn with other people and be meek and humble about who we really are, and then to hunger and thirst after righteousness, just all of these steps start to, they all point to the same thing. And now they all since collapse. we're talking about hamartia again, yeah, they all collapse or point to the same object, which is that one thing. You're making me feel a little bit better about myself, Riley, because you point you point to the fact that I'm supposed to be that, that I would have to be able to do all of these things and do them all at once to be able to do the thing that I'm not doing and you get and you've given me a standard which is the standard of the teachings of Christ and how they all how all of these beatitudes fit together to strive for that is you're you're right that is it that is can I do this well at the very moment you become aware of these things, the fact that you are aware of the thing you're struggling about, whether it's brought to your attention or it comes to you in contemplation, or the fact that you know there's something missing in your life and you become aware of that. that it, you know, the person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is filled. 
Yeah, I have to be able to let it in though, right? If someone is going to, if I'm not aware on my own and someone points it out to me, ego can get in the way, right? Not being, not being meek can get in the way. It depends on, yeah, it depends on your, that's it. It depends on your level of meekness or humility. Like if you're, if you're in the spirit of receiving it because you know it's your one thing, it's your great sin, whatever at the moment, if you're in the spirit of being able to receive it, it might be the best thing ever. And contemplation really is the key because if I'm not already contemplative enough to be aware, right? If I'm not aware on my own, if I can just focus on, on being aware, then if that's if that's my if that's the desire of my heart, if that's what I'm striving for of, of being contemplative, of being aware, if I don't figure out for myself, and someone does point out to me where I'm going wrong then I should be aware of that, right? I should be able to accept that. I should be. Able, I should already be open to it. I'm in a place of, right, if I'm striving for contemplation, if I'm striving to be aware, then if someone is going to point something out to me, I'm going to be much more open and ready to receive that. So let's. this is a great segue because we had discussed prior about wanting to take this in the direction of how we relate to each other. And you had asked the question in our pre-show, do, do I contribute to other people sinning or how do I contribute to other people sinning? And as we discussed it, one of the ways that came to mind for us was in how we approach people. Cause you could very well be in this mindset of wanting to, you know, improve or come to be aware of that sin that is plaguing you or, or holding you back. But if someone approaches you and say, dang, Chris, I got to be honest, you're just a flat out jerk. I, I, I mean, I don't know how people stand you. It's going to How be a little you, bit harder for me, isn't that's it? That's going to be hard for you to receive that. Now, again, it's on me, right? And It is. But, but we can, can really help we, each other out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What if it's more like, sweetheart, do you realize, you know, or consider, how about that? Consider the possibility that this may not be the best approach. That's really different from you're doing it wrong. You're just a jerk, right? Yeah, and and it, part of this is that you really need to know who your target audience is here. Like, you know, if you're in a close relationship, let's say spouses, you know, and and you, and it may be different for your spouse than mine. Like, if mine came to me and said, "Honey, I'm going to be honest. Um, would you at least consider that you're not a very smart person?" <laughs> you know, it might sound sweet, but I'm going to take that as like passive aggressive, and I'm going to get defensive. Well, it sounds passive-aggressive. You, you made it sound passive-aggressive, yeah. Well, I guess my point is other people respond to things in different ways. And, you know, like pet names or something like that, they immediately would sound either, either passive-aggressive or sarcastic to me. They're, well, pet names are, are always, in some sense, they are um, condescending, right? There you go. But not for everyone. They are for me. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, we have to, we have to work together. We have to be able to hear one another. We have to listen, and we have to listen from the heart. And, and this is tough, man. This is hard when, especially when it comes to those closest to us, because the problem is, the you know we we all have this sense of well, he really ought to know better. And and I've talked about this before in previous episodes. You know he. He ought to know better. And Socrates, we said, says that, you know, people don't really harm their own souls knowingly. 
if they're doing something wrong, it's because they really don't know. They really don't understand. And in some sense, I think that's really true. And so, but the people around us think, well, surely he knows better. I've told him he's read the scriptures. Um, Somebody else pointed it out. It's obvious. Doesn't everybody know this, right? There are all these reasons why we ought to know. And yet somehow we don't. Maybe even we knew last week and now we don't know. That's possible too. Well, let me suggest one effective way to possibly approach someone in a, you know, a constructive, critical way, but still in a way that won't put them immediately in the defensive. And this isn't always one that I use, but I think it could be effective. And it's pointed out really in the Gospels where, where Jesus says, you know, don't go telling someone to, you know, pick the speck out of your eye without first pulling the, the beam out of your own or the, he uses maybe different language, but the, the point is, is that maybe we ought to make sure before we approach someone else that we, we clean our own doorstep. And, and if we do it publicly, then perhaps the person that we're going to correct will understand that they're coming at it from not some place of superiority, which always puts people on the defensive. Like, I'm better than you, so you need to change. But rather coming to them and saying, honey, um, well, maybe not use honey because I just said <laughs> That's a triggering thing. But just say, um, you know, I I recognize that I'm not the best at this. And I think that we could both do better at and then X, Y, Z, whatever. I love that you said and not but. I realize I'm not the best at this and not but and I think we can both do better. Yeah. Well, that's just kind of a real general vague way of saying something. But I, I think that that sort of approach helps the the listener to not get defensive. Yeah. So we're coming up on the end of this episode and and I want to just bring us back kind of where we started a little bit with this with this idea of condemnation on the, in the individual sense. Um and I, I want to leave listeners with again this parable not even a parable but an experience that Jesus had with the woman taken in adultery. And sort of dissect the parts of that story so that we can understand for ourselves that we're not condemned. For one, there's there's a bit of a social cultural element to this story because where's the man taken in adultery? We can only assume that you know he's he's somewhere else. He's not there. He's maybe not even being condemned. Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, and so we, we have to at least acknowledge that sometimes our targets for condemnation are a little bit random, arbitrary. Well, they're socially constructed in some sense, right? Yes. And which is inherently arbitrary because society changes over time. And so we have to at least recognize that sometimes the targets of our ire, of our, um, condemnation are, are equally arbitrary. So I, I think that that's kind of an entry point to that that story. And then the second piece is who are the people surrounding her? Are they a, her peers? In being sinners, they are. That's why they all left when Jesus said the one without sin should cast the first stone. But can any of those men relate to her in her circumstances? directly. You know, these these are people who well, they're not women. They're not they're not women, you know, and so they they can't relate to her circumstances in that respect. They're not subservient. 
again, because they're not women, there's all these things that come along with being a woman in the meridian of time <laughs> in that culture. And, and yet they're the ones that are casting the stones and or preparing to. And so that's something that we ought to be aware of as well when, when we look at other people to condemn them. This is the walking in the other shoes principle. And then to follow the example of the Savior, rather than engaging the people that are surrounding her, who does he engage first? He goes straight to the woman. And, you know, you can see that in a couple different ways. He's essentially a human shield because there's going to be some people who will, <laughs> speaking of Hamartian missing the mark, there's going to be some people who won't throw accurately probably. <laughs> and so in a sense, he's become a human shield by crouching next to this woman who's about to be killed, stoned. And obviously these con condemners, these judges don't want to do that. They don't want to shed innocent blood. And so what can we learn from that example to be an, uh, a protector or an advocate, not only for victims, but perhaps for people who are transgressing as well? Both people are covered in that as, you know, allegorically almost. And for, for minorities, right? As you've pointed out, in, in, in some sense, she's a minority. Although, well, maybe minority is not the right word. There have, I think there have always been more women than men, but the status the status is that of a of a minority, right? Of a not the one who's in charge. Put it that way. The powerless. The powerless. Yeah. So following the Savior's example would be to come to the aid of those who are not in power, right? And be a voice for them. And he's not a strident voice. He is actually extremely meek in his approach. I mean, he's. He's scribbling something in the sand, and I've heard a lot of uh, a lot of people that have kind of come up with different ideas about what he's scribbling in the sand. Oh, there's so much conjecture about it. I've heard a lot of that conjecture, yeah, but it doesn't really matter. I, it was enough that the the folks who were witnessing that event understood it, and so uh, you know, teaching meekly and not putting them on the defensive, and actually. Uh, speaking of defensiveness again, the way that he approached them vocally wouldn't have put any of them on the defensive either. Can I just, I'll just speculate with those who have speculated. I'm going to say he was drawing nothing in particular in the sand. The point is that he's not standing up to them. He's crouching down with her and he's just moving his finger or a stick in the sand. Uh, this is really non-threatening. We don't have to make up that he wrote something threatening in the sand or something that would condemn them indirectly, some law or something. I don't know what people have said. I know there have been many things said, but how about nothing? I love that. How about have you not crouched down and picked up a stick and drawn nothing in the sand, but something, something that's nothing? I have. You know, this actually calls to mind a specific event that I witnessed on video. Oh, I didn't witness it. I saw it on video where there was two individuals on a subway train and they were getting ready to fight and they're yelling at each other and they're pushing back and forth. And of course, subway trains, you know, they can get a little bit crowded. Well, this one guy, he's witnessing this and he's got headphones on and he's eating a bag of chips. <laughs> I love this story so much. 
He's eating a bag of chips and he just, he's, he stands up from his chair and he just kind of nudges his way between him and he just does nothing at all except continue eating his chips. And as these, these two opponents try to kind of get around him and qu- keep yelling at him, they realize there's this innocent person standing in between them eating chips and listening to music. And honestly, it's the craziest thing. But they just kind of, at the same time, just chill. <laughs> and they just sit down. I, I don't know what to make of that, except that it it came to mind as I thought of Jesus putting himself in between these accusers and the woman and just drawing in the sand random stuff. That's what it looks like to me. It totally does. And then, the again, going back to the thing that he actually does say to them, he says, you know, let, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. First of all, he's not talking to anyone in particular. Let, let any person, not, not, you know, not John over there or Andrew over there or, you know, Zacharias or whomever over there. He, and I had to name disciples because I really don't know a whole lot of other Jewish names at the time. Oh, he's not taking an adversarial stance against any one person, right? He's, again, he's not standing up in any sense. He's not standing up because he's crouching down. He's not standing up to any person saying, who are you, John, to come over here talking about casting stones at adulterers? That's not what's going on, right? No, he's just kind of out loud saying, hey, um, you know, the law definitely says you have to stone a woman for being taken in adultery. So you better do it. But uh, let's make sure that the person who's doing it is without sin so that we're not condemned here. Let's do it the right way. And he doesn't move out of the way either. Right. He's still there. There's so much going on in this episode. I love that you brought that up because he's giving them permission to abide the law right. of Moses. He's giving them permission. Go ahead. Let's stone her. Go for it. But I'm not moving because this is one of my precious children. So I'm not moving. But let's, hey, let's make sure that if we're going to do this, I don't want any of you guys to be condemned either because I love all of you as well. So let's make sure the person who's without sin is the one that's throwing this stone. Thanks for bringing that, bringing out that that's an act of love. Yeah, he's expressing love for everyone. Yeah, that's an act of love toward them too. And then to have them all disperse, and at that moment turn to the woman, and ask, "Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm not doing so good. I'm about to be killed. Wait, you are? Where's your accusers? I don't see any of them." And she looks up and sees no one. All right, cool. Well, go and sin no more. I love you. I, I just, this whole episode to me is so instructive. Yeah, when I picture this scene, I don't see him having looked up either. I mean, you don't have to look up to be aware that everyone has left. And maybe you, if you do look at, maybe it's at the, very, at the very end to confirm what you already know that everyone has left. But he just stays with her the whole time. That's how it looks to me. Well, Christopher, I think that uh, we've, we've, covered quite a bit of area from general theological and philosophical ideas about what sin might or might not be. But the part that's been best for me is just thinking about Jesus and what he taught about sin in the way that he lived his life and ministered to the people that he loved. Including the sinners. Yeah, sinners and well, we're all sinners, right? Well, okay, including including the stories that, like the woman, like the story of the woman taken in adultery, which is supposed to show that yes, there's a sin here, right? And in fact, as you pointed out, yes, you can carry out the law. It's 
the law does say that. And yet look at how he handles it. There's there's a lot for us to learn here. And I'm sure there's going to be a moment when we'll be able to apply something similar to this in our lives. And my, my greatest prayer, not only for the listener, but for me, is that when the time comes and I'm faced with this similar situation, which we've all been involved in these, where someone's being condemned, I hope I'll take the stance of crouching next to this person who has committed a sin but is not condemned and find a way to not only for me but for everyone else to see them as they really are in their true self as children of God. Amen. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to the next episode and spending time with you. For now, this has been Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Ristol. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week. 